Can I assure you that I'm not going to preach for as long as I usually do? Um, as I get up, I wanted to give uh, David and Pauline a good, a good um, while to share their thoughts. So I'm going to preach a short sermon and, uh, on a wonderful text. And, uh, you know, when we think about safeguarding, I think very often and quite rightly, we're thinking in terms of defense. Um, it's about preventing harm. And, of course, that's very true. Um, but there is a very positive aspect to it as well, proactive aspect about safeguarding, um, which is really trying to promote among a whole church family the, uh, a, a culture in which vulnerable people, um, for whatever reason they're vulnerable, are built up. Now, of course, there are lots of practical steps that a church has to take on that, um, policies and, uh, and uh, so on. Um, but to make any of our organizational structures effective, truly effective, a church desperately needs to have a clear vision of Jesus. And that's why I've chosen to preach this morning on Isaiah chapter 40, particularly verses 9 to 11 this morning. It's a prophecy about God's own arrival, the coming of God in the person of Messiah, Jesus. And uh, we read here, um, in these verses, as we'll see in the next few minutes, that Jesus, God, comes to us in Christ um, as both the sovereign Lord in power and as the gentle shepherd of his beloved flock. Well, we're landed in Isaiah chapter 40. The landscape is vast, so let me try and help us get our bearings in Isaiah. Um, the Isaiah 40 is a major beginning in the book. It's a new start. It really kicks off the enormous second section of Isaiah's prophecy. And Isaiah is speaking um, to God's people, um, the people of Judah and Jerusalem. He's speaking in advance of their enforced exile that was to come when they were sent to Babylon. Now chapter 40 verse 1 sets the tone. Comfort, comfort my people. And then three voices are summoned to speak in verses 1 to 11 that Barbara just read to us three voices that really set the trajectory for the whole of the rest of Isaiah's prophecy. So first of all, the first voice we read in verses 3 and 5, I'm just going to skim over it really, a voice who announces the coming of the Lord. The people must prepare to meet the Lord because the whole world will see his glory. Now it turns out that this speaker is a man called John, John the Baptist. In the course of history we learn that Advent begins next Sunday and our Advent sermon series is actually studying the life of John the Baptist. And uh, so this is where he's prophesied. Um, he is, or one of the places anyway, he is the forerunner, that is the one who goes ahead of the Lord, who is Jesus, who is coming. So that's the first voice. The second voice is there in verses 6 to 8. And here the speaker has got to, we don't know who the speaker is here, but the speaker must assure the people that the Lord's word doesn't ever go off. It has no best before date. And so the promise of the Lord's coming is utterly dependable. And uh, the, you get a sense of it there in verse 8, very famous words. The grass of human faithfulness withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. In other words, he ne'er promiseth but when meaneth to pay, as when Shakespeare put it. He promises and he delivers. Right, voice number three, that's the one we're paying special attention to today. 
and you get in voice number three messengers. Again, we don't know their identity, but messengers are sent out from Jerusalem over the mountains of Judah to proclaim the good news of the Lord's coming. And the essence of their message is to say, Behold your God! Here is your God! And then in verses 10 and 11, we have two contrasting images of the coming of God in the person of Christ. Image number one, it's there in verse 10, and it depicts Christ, the conquering king. Verse 10, I'll read it. To see the sovereign Lord comes with power. His arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him. His recompense accompanies him. So the picture there is one who, someone who comes in total victory. It's his hands are full of the spoils of his victory, the spoils of his conquest as he arrives. And you see, if you read the later chapters of Isaiah, you see how it's fleshed out, that the, um, that the servant of the Lord, which is another title for, for Jesus, for the Messiah, is raised from the dead and triumphs over all evil. No messing with him from anybody. He is triumphant over all evil, one day removing evil entirely and establishing a new creation. So in other words, the first image there in verse 10, he comes with infinite power to deliver complete and total victory. That's the first picture. But then image number two in verse 11 is quite a contrast. We swap here the victory parade for the pasture land. And now we behold the same Lord... Jesus, but as the gentle, tender-hearted shepherd. Verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He leads, gently leads those that have young. Do you notice the, the compassion of the shepherd? It just stands out. He, he feeds the whole flock, but his heart just goes out especially to the young, the lambs, and also to the, to, to, to the vulnerable, that's those who carry young, you know, the ones who can't move too fast across the, 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 the mountains because they're, they're carrying their, their, their young with them. So he's so tender. He carries them close to his heart as well. That's deliberate. He carries them close to his heart because his heart goes out for them. And again, the image is developed in the later chapters of Isaiah. So, in fact, the extraordinary thing is, the most extraordinary thing is that the shepherd stoops so low in his care for the sheep that by chapter 53, he is identified with the sheep. And we read in that famous verse in chapter 53, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He, the shepherd, became one of the sheep to stoop down and lift up and gather the sheep close to his heart. It's as Jesus will say, 700 years after these words were first proclaimed, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's in John chapter 10. So we've got two pictures here, but they both describe the same person, exactly the same person. I love the way, actually, Isaiah links the two together. Do you look at the both verses? Just look at the word arm. The verses are linked with arm. So it's the arm of the Lord that rules for him in verse 10, and then the gathers them, in verse 11, deliberate, the same Lord, the same arm, one and the same Jesus who fulfills the prophecy, with a life and a death and a resurrection, which combine both infinite power on the one hand and matchless compassion 
It's exactly what Isaiah is saying. In fact, what we see as we read the Gospels is Jesus continually, repeatedly working in infinite divine power to act in compassion. Again and again, that's what he does. Power is used for compassion. As you know, I know I highlighted that word, use, deliberately. Because when, we were talking about safeguarding this morning, when safeguarding goes wrong, so often it's because there has been an abuse, a misuse of power. Which of course is such a travesty when um, the church or its representatives abuse power in the name of the one who used it for such compassion and goodness. Power and Power is abused um, when those who have it and who are in authority in some way or another do not feed the flock, but rather eat the flock. That's what happens. They don't feed the flock, but they eat the flock. One way or another, they feed on the ones they're supposed to be feeding. They forget that the flock belongs to him, not them. And so they look to gain something from the flock. Get sex, um, money, power, or even just some boost to their ego. To our ego, I'm talking as a leader in the church myself. Now we may wonder, how can it happen when, when the example of Jesus is so clearly against these abuses? Well, I think it's probably fair to say that very few Christian leaders set out to be abusive at the beginning, to bully, to feed on the flock. And very few churches set out to develop an unhealthy culture. No one says, well, we want to have an unhealthy culture um, that facilitates abuse in its various forms. Let me explain just one way, there's, there's various ways, but just one way that actually well-intentioned people can drift. Well-intentioned cultures can drift and end up in a mess. In lots of cases where things have gone wrong, it's partly because churches or leaders or both have lost sight of the true shepherd. And the, the leader starts thinking that they are the ultimate shepherd over the sheep. And the church members start believing it as well. So speaking to leaders first and speaking as a leader, let, note this well, Tom, <laughs> any other leader in any capacity, you are not the shepherd. You are not the shepherd. We're under shepherds, that's true. Um, in the pastoral ministry, that's true. We are under shepherds, and, and we have an important job to do in the shepherd's name. But this is the point. We remain sheep. We remain sheep. We've, with, with the same vulnerability and need of the shepherd as the rest of the flock have. We're in the same category as everybody else. Um, that is, that we're sheep. We need Jesus as the shepherd. And when leaders forget that and start thinking of themselves in a slightly different category, we endanger ourselves and actually we endanger our churches. Now, we then we stand back, stand back and think, well, hang on, why would, why would Christian leaders ever be tempted to drift into thinking that they were the true shepherd rather than Jesus? Well, I can tell you why, because I, I know it. It's, in, it's very subtle. It's, it's actually simply because it's so flattering to believe that we have the power and the compassion um, to, uh, to, to change people, 
to change situations. But we don't. We don't have that power. None. Jesus has it. We don't. So if we leaders forget that we are just sheep and we put ourselves in the position of the shepherd, well, it it may build our sense of importance for a little while. But in the end, it leads to disillusionment, frustration, resentment, and a sense of insignificance. And it's precisely out of those kind of emotional reactions that actually an abusive mindset begins to develop. Somehow you've got to claw some sort of meaning and some sort of significance and uh, do so at the expense of others. So leaders desperately need to remember, and I talk to myself too, we need to remember who the shepherd is. And it ain't us. It's him. Well, next, let me speak to church members and as a church member, which is what I am, a church member. There's one common factor when safeguarding fails is that leaders have been put on a pedestal. It happens, and and you, you will know about it. Subtly, the church puts them in the place of the true shepherd and so associates them with the shepherd that effectively they become the shepherd, or the institution becomes the shepherd. But of course, that's asking for trouble. For one thing, it's going to crush the leader um, under a burden of expectation, and it's going to remove proper accountability. But for another thing, pedestalling the leader, or, or pedestalling the institution, creates a very defensive culture. Because that institution has suddenly got to be protected at all costs. See, if, if the... It, after all, if the, if the leader or the institution is the good shepherd and that leader or that institution fails, then the shepherd has failed. We can't allow that to happen. And so we gather around and uh, we shut out criticism and uh, we, we, um, we defend ourselves unhelpfully and people end up unlistened to and nothing changes. But of course... The shepherd never fails. The shepherd hasn't failed. Sinful sheep fail. They do. Sometimes, very much. Sinful sheep fail. But the good shepherd himself remains as powerful and as compassionate as ever. So we've always got to work on our safeguarding structures and policies. We've always got to... We we, we need to to, um, become wise and gracious and, uh, and helpful at listening to those who have endured abuse, that is always important. It's always necessary. But in the context of this sermon, just, just now, as I begin to wind this up, I want to stress again how important it is as a church for a good safeguarding culture to be clear on who the shepherd is. It is him and only him. And we also need to be clear on his character, namely that his power is expressed and used supremely in caring for his flock with a special heart for those who are vulnerable. So how do we promote a healthy safeguarding culture? Um, Well, part of it is being totally clear that the actual pastor of this church, um, of course the word pastor comes from the Latin word for a shepherd, the actual word pastor, the active, present, pastor in charge, the at-work shepherd, is none other than Jesus. We've got to be clear about that. Um, I'm Adam, by the way, he's on his post-ordination training, his potty training this weekend, that's why he's not here. Um, so hopefully he'll be well and truly trained. Um, 
he and I and other leaders here, we are just other sheep who have various under-shepherd responsibilities, which basically consist in pointing and directing people to him. The church has one real pastor, and that is Jesus. Now, I try to remind myself of this often um, and pray something like this. Some of you may have heard me pray like this, and, I'm, and when I pray it, I me absolutely mean it. Lord Jesus, you are the pastor of this church. You go among the church family. You go on your pastoral rounds, and you go and do what only you can do. Because that's the reality. I've tried to remind myself of, of that. But let me end, therefore, by doing what I can to point you towards him. I don't know. You may have been let down um, by the church in the past. You may have been let down by this church in the past, or by its leaders, or by me. Perhaps for some other reason. You know yourself to be a vulnerable, um, entangled, wounded sheep. Some of those of you who know me know that I love music. Um, Handel's Messiah sets these words, he shall feed his flock. He shall, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. I'm not going to sing it at full, full, full belt. Tempted though I am. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. The person who put the words of Handel's Messiah together did a wonderful and, and uh, ingenious thing. You hear that tune, he, sh he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. Beautiful, lilting tune. And then suddenly, to the same tune, the words of Jesus, come unto him, all ye that heavy are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Words that are written up right behind me in the uh, fabric of the church. Come unto me, all that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So the good shepherd is calling us He's calling us with sovereign power. No, never any messing with him. No, full power of the king. And yet his heart is soft, gentle, filled with compassion to e for everybody who comes to him. He's standing in our midst now, invisibly, but by his spirit, very definitely. And he says, come to me. So let's go to him. We bring our wounds to be tended, Memories to be soothed, hurts, touched, burdens eased, misunderstandings disentangled, sins to be forgiven. The shepherd stands among us. So let him do his work now by his spirit. Just some quiet. We'll have a moment, perhaps individually with the shepherd, who though we're many in this room, he can deal with us each. shall feed his flock like a shepherd. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. Heavenly Father, deal with each of us now in your great compassion through Jesus Christ, your Son, by the power of the Spirit, and touch us, particularly those to whom today has touched something in their lives, 
help them, very especially. We ask that you will do this, Heavenly Father, for the sake of the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ, our Lord.